this and this boy raised his hand and said, what if you're in a writing class and your teacher says that you have to use an outline? And I'm like, is, is that teacher in the auditorium now? <laughs> <laughs> hey readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 213. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on the show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. At a time when change is constant and we are pulled in far too many directions, we need a way to stay present to life and to increase our ability to remain calm, think clearly, and maintain our well-being. Many studies indicate mindfulness improves our mental, emotional, and physical health. On a Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee, you can learn how to practice mindfulness and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health and mindfulness. The world truly can be a better place. It all starts with a mindful moment. Readers, this is about the time that I start remembering all of those little gifts that I meant to get for people. My kids' teachers, that lovely person at church, my cousin out of town. I have a few go-to gifts for certain occasions, and while I don't typically go around giving my own books as gifts, I do think my book, I'd Rather Be Reading, would be a perfect gift for the readers in your life. It's a small book, typically about $15, but it's unique and a little more personal to say to your gift recipient that you recognize them as a kindred spirit, and you believe the dedication was made for them. Where I say it's for everyone who's ever finished a book under the covers with a flashlight when they were supposed to be sleeping. Find I'd Rather Be Reading, The Delights and Dilemmas of the Reading Life at your local bookstore, at Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, or online, wherever you buy your new books. This week, I'm chatting with reader and children's book writer Kate DiCamillo about the books that inspired her to dream up stories and the hopeful work of writing for children, and what she learns from readers, that's you, about her own books. Kate has so much to share about the value of friendship with other people who work differently than you do. And her advice is applicable whether you're an aspiring author or a reader looking to build a bookish community in your own personal life. This is such a fun episode. Let's get to it. Kate, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to talk to you in person as a parent to young readers and is one with nieces and nephews. And I pop in the the library all the time. I'm no stranger to your books, but I do feel like I've been kind of chasing you the past few weeks. So first I went to my local library and heard Ann Patchett speak about the Dutch house. Oh, (laughs) I don't know if you know this, but she talks about you when she talks about the Dutch house. (laughs) I do know that. Bless her. I don't know that. Isn't that a beautiful book? Have you read, have you read the Dutch house? Yes. Well, first I read it on paper and now I'm listening to Tom Hanks read it to me. Oh, Isn't that something? Now, she said something fascinating. Well, two fascinating things. First of all, am I mistaken or does she call you fluffy? (laughs) So it's funny because Anne and I are both touring at the same time. And uh, she's usually beating me to any venue like I was in Dallas the week before last. (laughs) And then they did the same uh, venue that she had done at the Dallas Museum of Arts. People came through the line and said, Fluffy. So yes, she does. I thought she did. But then there's a character in the Dutch house named Fluffy. And I thought maybe I was just really tired. (laughs) It's Fluffy DiCamello. But I understand your connection to Ann Patchett goes way back before you even met her. Is that right? 
when I first moved to Minneapolis, I worked in a book warehouse. How long ago was that? Uh, that was 1994 when I moved here. I loved this warehouse. I was assigned to the third floor, which is all children's books, but it was just this big warehouse full of books and we couldn't roam around it. And I found the magician's assistant and then went back and read her first two books and just have been a fan of hers ever since. And so to have your your heroes become your friends and to have your heroes read your words is just, it's something else. She said something fascinating, but she didn't elaborate. But when she talked about the Dutch house, something that I so enjoyed hearing was about her process, writing the book and the pieces that she put in place to determine what kind of story she was going to tell. But also she talked a lot about fixing the book when it wasn't quite working and you were instrumental in fixing the book. You hadn't read the book. You all talked a little bit about her woes with the book. And then she said, you sent her the last paragraph, not having read the book. And sure enough, it turned out to be the last paragraph. Well, true story. <laughs> yes, this is what happened. We were at the beginning of our friendship. She's like, I'm working on a novel. I said, I'm working on a novel too. She said, uh, what's your novel about? I said, I can't tell you or my teeth will fall out. <laughs> and that goes back to process because she and I work very differently. And then she said, you know, that she was struggling. I think she said she was struggling with the ending. And I said, okay, well, tell me the, the main character's name and tell me the title and I'll write an ending for you. And she said from the beginning, I think I'll use this. And I'm like, oh, come on. <laughs> no, you won't. Were you being flippant? Were you being funny? Yeah, I was just like, you know, I just, I wrote, I wrote a paragraph knowing the title, knowing the character, and knowing that I was writing to a literary hero of mine that I was just starting to become friends with. I, I, I never in a million years thinking that, you know, she was going to use it. But she said from the beginning, I think that I think this is it. I think this will work. And I just thought she was kind of pulling my leg, but consistently. And then I got to read the novel in manuscript and there it was. And how did it strike you? Surreal. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer. Yeah. It's, yeah. And, and like I said, she, she and I work so differently. I, you know, I never talk about what I'm working on until like I'm done with it. And she kind of knows where she's going to go. She writes in her head, carries it around in her head, working on it before she ever sits down to write. And I sit down with an image or a word or a name, and I start not knowing anything about what's going to happen. So it's just, it's so different. And it's so remarkable to have her in my life and, and to, to talk with her about everything. Well, I think it's so interesting for readers to hear that of all the books they love, there is no one right path to creation. It is so necessary for people to hear that because ultimately it's such a mystery how it gets done. <laughs> all of us are always looking for the way to do it. It's somebody to tell you how to do it. The only thing that is like an absolute is you have to sit down and write it at some point. <laughs> oh, yeah, but that... There's the rub. Right. But the other than that, there's just like I know so many writers and nobody works in the same way, you know, and that's part of what you need to discover if you want to write a book is how am I going to go on this journey with myself? When did you realize that not everyone starts the way you do with, with an image, with just one piece of information? I mean, I've known that for a while. It's funny because it makes me think of, I, I did a school visit. I was in this big auditorium talking to kids about writing. And I said something about process and how it's different for everybody and how I don't use an outline. This, and this boy raised his hand and said, what if you're in a writing class and your teacher says that you have to use an outline? 
And I'm like, is is that teacher in the auditorium now? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. And and she was. And so I turned to her and I said, if I was uh, a fifth grader in your class right now, and you told me this is the way that I had to write a story, I wouldn't be able to do it. And I've known that, you know, for a long time that I can't work in that way. And I've known for a long time because I've been writing for a long time and have been in writing workshops for a long time that everybody works in a different way. But for some reason, people still think there's a right way, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, bless that kid's heart. That is a really great question. And as I say to kids, a lot of times um, a teacher will raise their hand and say, what's your advice for young writers? Or a kid will raise their hand and say, what's your advice for me as somebody who wants to be a writer? And it's just, Uh I always have the same advice, whether you're 10 or 60, because I can guarantee you that any room of 500 people, there are as many adults in there who want to write as there are kids, you know. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. So Kate, what's your advice to those aspiring writers? (laughs) My advice is read, read as much as you can. Write, this seems like a no brainer, but I'm a person who spent a long time wanting to do it and not writing. So you had to find some way to make a deal with yourself about how you're going to do the work. And it's different for everybody, but you have to find a way to do the work of writing. You have to rewrite. Like this is a shock because for kids, they're told it all the time, but adults, for some Mm -hmm. reason, we think, oh, this is something I'm supposed to do. So I'm going to sit down and it's going to come out right the first time. Mm -hmm. And it's not. (laughs) So read, write, rewrite, keep a notebook and stare at everything. It's, there's a wonderful. I quote. mean, I'm laughing because it sounds so simple, but I know, I know that you mean this. I've- I do. I mean it with my whole heart. There's a, a wonderful Flannery O'Connor quote: uh, "The writer must never be ashamed of staring. There is nothing that does not require her attention." So I say to the kids, "Everything's your business. Humanity's your business. If you want to write." And the natural world is your business and all of it. So if you carry that notebook around with you and stare, the notebook is a reminder to like keep everything open, your eyes and your ears and your mind and your heart. Do you still have a notebook in your bag? I have a notebook sitting in front of me right now. Is it always sitting in front of you? It's never very far from me. (laughs) So what are you jotting down? I haven't jotted anything down, but it's here. Should I? The the last words that are written in here are quotes. Uh, it's durable enchantments. And it's from some interview in the Parish Review. Ooh. And I just, I love that phrase, durable enchantments. And I think, hmm. Now, of course, I've said it out loud, so I can't use it to turn it into a story. But it's still, they seem like potent words. So I wrote them down in the notebook. They do. Now, I love how you said both write and rewrite as important parts of the process. Oh my goodness, yes. You don't write with an outline. And yet I just finished Beverly right here. Thank you for reading it. It was my pleasure. As a reader and writer, it's difficult to imagine reading Beverly right here and thinking that you didn't know where the story was going when you sat down. Because as I read it, it's layered, it's nuanced, it's several story threads going on. It seems so rich. I imagine that very few of us can sit down and tell a story like that on the first go. And I would love to hear the difference between the first draft and where Beverly right here ended up. Process is fascinating to me for one reason, because it's so different for everybody, but two, because it's like mysterious 
to me how I work. I mean, I know logistically how I work. This story, I start off with, I know what happens immediately is Buddy died, and that's Beverly's dog. And I know that she leaves home. I write a whole rough draft that kind of looks like Jack Nicholson in The Shining wrote it. (laughs) That's not what I expected. Right. You say that uh, to kids and they don't totally get it because that's just not, but it's just like a dog. (laughs) That may be best. Yeah. So, I mean, but it is, it's, it just looks, you know, I don't pay attention to uh, spelling, um, punctuation. I don't capitalize. It is just, it's kind of just like this rough, it's single spaced. And I am just kind of following behind Beverly as she does this. I really literally have no idea where she's going to go or what's going to happen. And as a sidebar to all of this, I'll say for everybody who's got vacation plans to come to Minnesota, you can go to the University of Minnesota and visit the Curlin Collection there, K-E-R-L-A-N, which has my rough drafts and rough drafts of uh, lots of uh, children's books, writers, and also original art for children's books, artists. And you can look at this process. But so it it is this terrible, hideous first draft where I'm just (laughs) following Beverly and it makes almost no sense, but is coherent enough. I get to understand the story Mm -hmm. where she's going. Do you write this in a a week, a month, a year? Um, I write it two pages at time and I would have to go and look at that draft to know exactly how long it is. I can say probably off the top of my head, it was probably 60 pages that way. And then I let it sit. I print it up and I let it sit for at least two weeks. And then without reading it, I come back and put it to the left of the computer and I start to retype. And now I'm double spacing and I'm paying uh, attention to how things are spelled and I'm indenting and I'm putting dialogue quotes around things. And I slowly make my way through a second draft. And then I do it again for the third draft. By the time I get up to the fourth draft, those things where you're talking about it being layered, I can kind of see out of the corner of my eye that there's a deeper meaning to things. And I feel like my job is not to look at that directly but just to kind of be aware of it and let my subconscious do the work. Or really how I think of it is the story at that point is smarter than I am. Mm -hmm. So I just kind of like need to get out of my own way and let the story tell me. And then what happens is like, I, you know, this book has been out for a month and I, I, I do all the interviews and I talk to people and every reader that I talk to gives me more <laughs> insight into what the story is about and those things that are in there that I wasn't seeing out of the corner of my eye. There are a lot of wings in this book. You would think that I put them in there on purpose, oh, but I didn't even put that together until I did an interview with somebody who said, there are a lot of wings in this book. And I'm like, there are? Something that we know about What Should I Read Next listeners is they are very interested in how the books they love to read get made and what happens behind the scenes. It's fascinating to hear. Now, at this point, you've written almost 20 books. Yeah, it's actually, it's more than 20. I can't, oh, is it really? Do you, do, you, do you know? Do you lose count at a certain point? Or do <laughs> authors always know? Like, yes, it's 47 and a half, actually. No, I don't always know. But because I, I talk to kids so much, it's the kind of question that kids ask. 
because they think in that very quantitative way. And slogans in the last time I was out, a kid asked, and I'm like, I think it's this. And then like when I got back home, I, I sat down and counted it up. So I'm at 25. Right? Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. So 25 books in, has your process evolved over time? It's still basically the same. It's two pages it's multiple drafts where it's changed a little bit is like when I'm in the, the fifth or sixth draft, I will let myself do multiple sessions in a day. So mm-hmm. I say, okay, I'm just good. I can get up as soon as I do two pages, which is what I always tell myself. Mm-hmm. But I will do, you know, several sessions jollying myself along each time by saying this is the only session. <laughs> but other than that, it hasn't changed very much. I move slowly. I rewrite I don't outline. All of that has stayed the same. When you say you measure in pages, is that by word count? Do you write in Microsoft Word or something like that? How do you know? I do write in Microsoft Word and I never think in terms of word count. I only think in terms of pages. It's always like somebody will talk to me about the number of words and it's like, what? Where is that? And then I have to look (laughs) around and find it on the document. Yeah, but no, I just think in terms of pages. And as soon as, like when I'm uh, on that first draft, which is the scariest one, as soon as I hit those two pages, I'm up. I don't care if it's mid-sentence. It's just like I get up as soon as it's done. And, And the other thing that works for me is to get up and do it first thing, you know, before I can talk myself out of it. So I've got a coffee maker that, you know, you can, it's set for five o'clock in the morning. I hear that go off. I smell it, which is great. And I come downstairs, pour myself a cup of coffee and go in there and do the two pages before I can talk myself out of doing the two pages. Now you mentioned talking to kids and how they ask different questions, which makes so much sense, but I hadn't thought about that. Do kids ask questions that you wish adults would also ask? Uh, Kids, one, if you're in a room full of adults, my favorite part of going out and and speaking is to get to the Q&A. As opposed to standing behind a podium and being the author. And I never even think of myself as an author. I think of myself as a writer, which is to me a totally different thing. Author is like you've arrived somewhere and writer is you got up and you wrote this morning. (laughs) I like that. I just, I like interacting with people rather than speaking at them. And you never know what people are going to ask. But if you have a room full of, of 500 adults and you say, who's got questions? It takes a long time for the adults to start asking questions. But the kids all the hands will go up. They will ask everything and anything from how old you are to are you ever afraid? And questions that adults just don't want to be caught asking, but that I'm glad to talk about, you know, and adults feel like they have to ask a really important question. Kids just know that every question is important. You know? Yeah, I, I guess adults are better at editing themselves. <laughs> right. Or, or worse, at editing themselves, depending on how you want to hear that. <laughs> right. And it's a joy to, to talk with them. And also, you can never, ever phone it in because you never know what's going to come out of a kid's mouth. You know, you have to be absolutely present with them. And I love that. They make you a better version of the writer. Yeah, they, and they make me a better version of the person. And, and just like writing for them, it's funny that you would say a better version because, you know, when I started writing, um, I started where most people start, which is short stories thinking they're short, therefore they're easier, right? Which of course is completely erroneous. <laughs> and, and, and sending those short stories to literary magazines. 
That's where most of my rejection letters came from. And then when I got the job at the uh, book warehouse, slowly, slowly, I started to read the books on the third floor, which was all kids' books. And and I started to think, you know, I'd like to try to do something like this. And the book that I read where I consciously formed that thought was a, a novel called The Watsons Go to Birmingham 1963 yeah. by Christopher Paul Curtis. You know that book. It's a great book. And so all of that I'm getting around, I'm, I am actually going to make a point here, is I started writing for kids very quickly. I had just kind of this sense that it made me into a different kind of writer. And I didn't have the words for that until Catherine Patterson, who also writes for kids, said, when you write for kids, you're duty bound to end with hope. And I didn't know that consciously, but I could feel it. And so I like the writer that I am when I write for kids because of that. It makes me more hopeful. I've found that, you know, some people will say, oh, well, when are you going to write a book for adults? And it's like, I feel like I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be doing what I'm supposed to be doing. That's a good feeling. Yeah. Kate, do you remember what it was about the Watsons go to Birmingham that made you think, oh, yes, this? Yeah, I do. I do. And the funny thing is that it's coming up on an anniversary for that. And oh. I, I've spoken so much about that book that they asked me if I would. They, there were several introductions to it. And I wrote one of the introductions. So in order to do that, I had to go back and reread it, which is something that I hadn't done. And it's like, oh boy, I hope it's as good as I remember. And it is. <laughs> oh, isn't that a terrifying feeling though? Yeah. Like, oh book, you meant so much to me. Don't let me down. Yeah. It was so central to, to the course of my life. I mean, at the time, the, the feeling I had, it was so funny, so warm. It's about a family and the family is so loving. And so it's like you're taken into this family. It's, it's 1963. They go to Birmingham. And so it deals with something that happens in Birmingham that is just unbelievably terrible. So it's a book that tells the truth, but it also makes you feel safe and loved and seen at the same time. I wasn't able to articulate it. I just looks, I want to write something that makes somebody feel this way. I'm going to tell them the truth and I'm also going to make them feel safe and loved. That's what that book gave me. And that's what set me off down this path. Your last three books, there was Ramey Nightingale, Louisiana's Way Home, Beverly Right Here. Can you tell him on a first name basis with your characters though? <laughs> I think that's a good thing. They're not books where nothing sad happens, like far from it. And yet they tell the truth and I hope make the reader as well as the character in the book eventually, because you're getting to that hopeful place, feel safe and loved and seen. I think it makes the reader feel like it's okay that things are really hard. It's hard and it's going to be okay. So now I'm thinking that's not an accident. Oh, well, what a lovely assessment on your part. How wonderful that maybe I can make a reader f feel the way Christopher Paul Curtis made me feel standing in the warehouse reading that book. From the very beginning of my writing life, there's been this thing about there are hard things in the books. And um, it's always been baffling to me because kids live in the same world that we do. Mm -hmm. And things are hard here. Things are beautiful here, but things are challenging here. It's, it's hard to be a human being. It takes a lot of bravery to love. The, that's true whether you're a kid or an adult. It, it seems like you would have to acknowledge those things in order to tell a story that matters, and you wouldn't want to lie to kids. Oh, no, because they will sniff you out so fast. 
(laughs) Right, they will. (laughs) Kate, I think it's so interesting and also very gratifying that you named reading as one of the essential components to being a good writer. And after hearing about these books that are so important to you, I can't wait to hear more about your favorites. So kids always say, what's your favorite book? And it's like, are you kidding? Of course they do. <laughs> yeah. One, one book. And anytime I say that to a kid, it's like, okay, are you a reader? Uh-huh. Okay. Tell me your favorite book. And then they're like, oh man, I can't do that. And it's like, <laughs> right? So I've just pulled out some of my favorites, books that I go back to uh, a lot to reread. Well, we don't have to call them favorites then. I can't wait to hear what you chose as your three well-loved reads and we'll see what we can find for you to read next. Oh, I can't wait to get my book recommendation. It's kind of like getting my fortune told. I'm super (laughs) excited about that part of it. So it is like getting your fortune told, isn't it? I had never thought about that. Yeah, no, it's just like, I can't wait for that. So of all the books you could have chosen, which three came up in the little lottery today? The Collected Stories of Eudora Welty. which I go back to all the time. You know, it's funny because I got assigned Eudora Welty stories in college, but you know, now I'm 55 years old. And so every time I come back to this collection and every time I reread these stories, some of them that I've been reading since college, I come back as a different and changed person and get more out of it each time I reread. And dog ear more pages and different pages each time. I can't do a better job of talking about that than Anne Patchett has done. She she wrote an, a new intro to the collected stories of Eudora Welty, and she talks about <laughs> reading this one story about a Girl Scout visiting an old a nursing home and uh, how when you, you, you read it when you're younger, you're like horrified by the clutching grasp of the old people and you're very much on the side of the Girl Scout. And then you come back to it as a 55-year-old and you think, would it kill you to sit down and talk to these ladies? You know, so it's that. It's the constant insight Mm. into yourself and into humanity and it's constantly changing. So I, this is one of those books that has been a part of my reading life since college, but that I literally reread the whole thing every year and make a point to do it because it always gives me something. So that was an easy one to pull off the shelf and say, yes, this one. Well, now I feel like I'm having my fortune told because I haven't read Eudora Welty since college, but I made an offhanded comment to um, my husband a year or two ago and said, oh, I would like to read her again. And so he gave me an edition of this book for Christmas last year, but I haven't read it yet, Kate. What? But I can see it. It's right here by my desk. I think I think I was just waiting for the right moment. Is it the one with the photograph on the front? It's green and yellow. I mean, there is a photograph, but it's small. It's not huge. Yep, 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 yep. Lucky you. That's what I have to say. I'm going to go read that Girl Scout story. A Visit of Charity is the title, but you'd be well served to start with the first story and move all the way through to the end. Every story is a gift in a different way. Uh, I cannot recommend it strongly enough. Okay, Kate, what's your next much-loved book? Let's talk about Anne Patchett. (laughs) Let's do it. (laughs) I pulled um, the book before Dutch House Commonwealth, which came out three years ago. I have reread this multiple times as well. I read it in an advanced reading copy before it came out. And then I have gone back to it for myself as a reader, but also for myself as a writer, because she does something in it that really to me seems impossible, but yet 
she pulls it off. And that is, she moves within a single paragraph to different points of view without ever losing the reader. And it is something that I have, as a writer, never mastered. And so I've gone back to this book looking for that. And then it's so well done that I lose sight of the technique and I just fall into the story again. That's high praise. You know, everybody's reading The Dutch House now, which is great. And I love The Dutch House. But it's also, if you missed Commonwealth, go back and read Commonwealth. Commonwealth has one of my favorite exchanges that I've ever read. Franny is talking to a writer, an older esteemed writer. And he says, tell me about you. Did you ever want to be a writer? And she says, no, I only ever wanted to be a reader. (laughs) And of course he's relieved, but something about the way she wrote it and something about, I think what we both do, like you talk to a lot of readers who want to be writers, who do it as a means to an end, not necessarily just a means to enjoyment. And I just, I think of those lines all the time. Uh, Yeah, that's, I remember that exchange. And it's like, it stops you short almost, doesn't it? It does. (laughs) Yeah, it does. And, you know, when kids ask, why did you become a writer? I have so many different answers. But one of them is always, well, because I was a reader. And I do think that after a while, you want to tell a story back, but not everybody does, you know, but that was certainly part of it for me. I got in a in the airport, this is one of the tra- pleasures of traveling now is like, there's a lot of literature in the airport. And so uh, on this last trip, I got Barbara Kingsolver's um, Unsheltered. Have you read that? I have indeed. I read that in the Smoky Mountains on a camping trip, largely by flashlight by the fire, oh which goodness. I got to say, I think Barbara Kingsolver would approve of. No kidding. I'm just entranced. Let's just say that I'm entranced and I'm not done, but I can recommend it wholeheartedly. And you would recommend it wholeheartedly too, I would think. There's this feeling that comes with reading certain authors, especially authors that you as a reader have a long relationship with where you start reading the story and you just kind of like sink into it and you relax and you think, I am in good hands here. Yes, yes, yes. It's that exactly. You can give yourself over to it 110%. You're being told a story, but you're also, there's another part of you that is always thinking about what it means to be alive now and also to be in the world. It's just, it's beautiful and just a really compelling read. And you're right. You never doubt her for a second, which is part of what you always want. I'm just thinking as I'm like talking about this, that's three women which uh, I didn't intend, but that's the way it is. Eudora Welty and Patchett Barbara Kingsolver. I like it. (laughs) Three Southern women actually also. Yes, that's very true. And you're in Minnesota, but you're not from Minneapolis. No, I grew up in Central Florida. Now that you say that, I'm thinking I knew that because in hearing about Ramey Nightingale, Louisiana, Beverly... Ramey's a Floridian, isn't she? It's now been a couple of years. Yeah, yes, she definitely is. That's good memory, given how many books you read. I think King Solver's out in Arizona now, but she's got her roots down here. I'm in Louisville, so we like to claim her. You remember um, Animal, Vegetable, Mineral? That was her going back and living on the farm in Kentucky? Yes. Yeah. That made me very happy. Me too. As a reader. I mean, there are many readers to feel connections to books you love, but that, you know, that one of physicality is is a powerful one. Yep, yep, yep. Kate, tell me about a book that didn't work for you. You know, this is the thing about having written books. <laughs> I know how uh-huh. hard it is. I know how hard you try. I know that also I can read a book and love it. 
I, I make a pile of my books uh, that I've read. And, you know, this one to this friend, this one to that friend. And some of them I'll just give away. And this one I would never give away. But that's how things get sorted around here. Mm-hmm. All of that is to say that a book that I love, sometimes another very readerly friend will not. And so I just never want to say this didn't work for me because so much of it I know is taste. And also because I know how much of your heart you expose to write a book. And I just wouldn't want to hear on a podcast how I had failed somebody. (laughs) Oh, it's absolutely taste. Have you stopped to think how you would articulate your taste as a reader? Well, you and I can, I mean, one, you're going to recommend a book to me. So I know you're already like churning through all of that. (laughs) (laughs) That program is constantly engaged. I I don't think there's an off switch. (laughs) I guess you would say I'm realistic fiction and I'm about connections. I want people to connect. I want heart. I want humanity. I know myself as a reader, as eight years old, uh, standing in the library in Claremont, Florida, uh, looking at the spin rack, uh, you know. (laughs) Oh, I love that visual. (laughs) And what I would reach out for. And it wasn't science fiction. You know, that's not where I go Mm -hmm. instinctually fantasy Mm -hmm. or um, post-apocalyptic. But then uh, there's an exception to every rule. And doesn't that make the reading life grand? Yeah. Station Mm -hmm. 11. Have you read that? Oh, I love that so much. And that's, you know, what is that? The description of that book, I would say, yeah, probably Mm -hmm. not for me. Have you read her new one? No. And said it's spectacular. I haven't. I can't wait. Everybody should read Station Eleven. I want to know if Emily St. John Mandel writes with an outline. I'm thinking you have to, but then you don't know how another writer works and what they can pull off in their brains because they don't have the same programming that you do. Right. Well, you'll have her on the show at some point and you can ask her that. Well, maybe I should. I just recently read The Glass Hotel and I inhaled it, really enjoyed it. It's not coming out till March, but that's, that's not so far away at this point. I read an interview with Emily St. John Mandel where she said, I don't know how to write novels that unfold from beginning to end. I only know how to write novels that jump around in time. And I thought, oh, that's so interesting. Wow. And do you have like a giant bulletin board on your wall or do you just sit down and go, here we are in 1999 and here we are in 1994 and here we are in 2017? I I don't know, but I'd like to. You were wondering what was going to go in the notebook. (laughs) There it goes. I'm happy to hear it. Something that I think is helpful for readers to know, many already know this, and I think it's very freeing in their reading life, but for some it's a realization. And that is that there's a difference between a book that is to your taste and a book that is well written. Those can be entirely different things. Yes, absolutely. So we try to talk about books in a way that lets a reader think about their own reading life. And I definitely think there is a time for reading a book that is maybe not to your taste. Like we all need to push ourselves or be pushed in that way sometimes. And that's, what's wonderful about this podcast. Like the more people who are in your life who are reading differently, because this goes back to station 11, that was a reader that I, a reader friend that I trusted when she said this, you have to read this. It's one of those books where I sat down on the front porch and I thought, I've got to read this because Julie needs it back. You know, because she wanted it back. And it's like, I'll just move through it really. And I didn't get up. 
but I wouldn't have done it unless, you know, she said, this is a book that you have to read. So it's just like, you have to trust yourself enough to go into a a book that wouldn't be normally something you think you might like, Mm -hmm. but also surround yourself with readers who are always pushing the boundaries too. Okay. I have a cold right now and it's really useful to me as a reader to to know like, okay, I just want a cup of tea and I want to curl up in my chair and feel better and to be able to know how to pick a book for that circumstance. Yes. And to have people who say, this is a little different for you. This is going to be a stretch, but I think it's worth making that stretch. You need both. There's a book called Art and Fear, which is a book about making art by two art professors, Bales and Orlin. Those are their last names if anybody wants to look for the book. And they talk about how whatever you're working on now has the seeds of the next project in it. And it's the same way with your reading life. It's just like you think, okay, I'm going to stretch myself and I'm going to read this. But then that opens the door for the next book that you might not have read, you know? So it's just like, it's this ever expanding universe. You know what that makes me think of is you've written a good number of standalones, but you've also written several series. And I would love to hear at what point did you know that Ramey Nightingale was going to be, do you describe it as a series? Ramey, Louisiana, Beverly, they're connected. The publisher describes it as a trilogy, which I actually grateful for those people in the marketing rooms and how they come up with that, because that's more of how I think of it, or they say companion novels. That's a good way to put it. And and when did I think of it? I, you know, I thought I was done when I wrote Ramey. And I've learned to know the done feeling. And I thought, I've taken these characters to a safe place and mm-hmm. I am now done. But Louisiana's voice, she's kind of like, you know, the wedding guest in the rhyme of the ancient mariner, you know, like mm. she pulled me literally. It was almost, it was a demand. Mm-hmm. And her voice was so overwhelming. But again, with the notebook that I always carry around, because that's mm-hmm. where Louisiana's voice showed up, because uh, I'll jot down things that I hear. I didn't intend to do it. And if I'd set out intending to do it, I wouldn't have been able to do it. You know, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I can imagine what the reasons might be, but I don't know what your reasons are. Do you think it would have felt like too stultifying? It's the same as you say, I'm going to sit down and write a novel now. No, you sit down and say, I'm going to write two pages now. And, and oh. say, oh, I'm going to write a trilogy now. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. You wouldn't get out of bed. So <laughs> I don't know. You can still smell that coffee. <laughs> right. Well, you get out of, the be- out of bed and drink the coffee and feel sorry for yourself. About what you couldn't do. <laughs> I'm glad it didn't work out that way. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a really, it's if I'd thought of that, I, it's too intimidating. I never would have done it. I'm glad it didn't happen that way. So you just had a book come out. You're still touring for it, I imagine, for Beverly right here. Mm-hmm. Not like that's not enough, Kate, but what are you working on or what are you dreaming of working on next? Well, and what a lovely way to say it, dreaming of working on. So because everything now is kind of taking up with, touring. But I have a novel that I have rewritten now twice for my editor, which those are the big big rewrites. Mm -hmm. The next thing that we will do together is do the line edits. And what's it about, a, a kid would say at this point. And I would say, if you follow me out to the parking lot after this event, and threaten me with bodily harm, I still wouldn't tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Because you don't talk about it. I don't. Because if I talk about it, 
even now when it's like so close to being a thing, it dissipates the energy or the magic of it for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And like, if I talk about it really early on, I don't write it if I talk about it. Mm -hmm. I won't talk about it until maybe it's in, you know, first pages, which is the the first round of typesetting it. Maybe then I would talk about it, but probably Mm -hmm. not until it's in uh, last pages. Well, you know, I wouldn't press you. We just (laughs) talk about what we're reading instead. (laughs) Right. And you know what I'm reading now? I'm reading the Barbara King Solver. I also have got a parish review that I'm working my way through. Mm Mm-hmm. And I've got Trinity, which is about Oppenheimer. Have you read that? About Oppenheimer? No, I'm thinking of the Leon Uris novel from a million years ago. Yeah, no, this is um, Louisa Hall. She's a poet mostly, but this is like kind of like a fictional rumination on all the different people that Oppenheimer knew. And it's really, really good. And also makes you think. The Nickel Boys is something, have you read it? I have read it. I mean, like, that is unbelievable. I thought it was fantastic. It's a doozy. So excellent. It's like the kind of book where I had to put it down because it just kills you, Mm -hmm. you know? So I would have to, I could only do it in small bursts because it was so painful and so beautiful. Oh, there is no promise of hope there. Other than, well, we won't give away the end, but at the end in that restaurant. That is true. So yeah, that's what's going on here in the reading world. Kate, is there anything that you'd like to be different in your reading life or that you'd like more of in your reading life right now? I would love to have a day (laughs) where I could just read. The, The airplane rides when I'm traveling are such a gift because I can just sit and read and read and read. Mm -hmm. But I would love to have an uninterrupted period, three hours in the middle of the day. That would be like, wouldn't that be delightful? And and maybe at some point I'll get that, but it hasn't happened yet. Uh, There's just never enough time. But at the same time, I am not fully in my body that's when I fully become myself is when I'm reading. And so I, mm-hmm. I cannot live without it. And so it's always a part of my life. I would just like to have a little bit more of it, I guess, because it centers me. Well, my hope for you is that at the end of book tour, that can be your reward. <laughs> Three hours in your favorite reading spot. What is your favorite reading spot? Uh, for the wintertime, a library, you know, a leather library chair by the uh-huh. fireplace. Uh-huh. For the summertime, back in my little den, I've got a day bed. So those are the two places that I go. And I, I, I do, I never get three hours, but I do make sure that at some point in the afternoon when I'm home, I get like 45 minutes to sit and read and to write a little bit in the notebook. Because like I said, it, it centers me and sustains me. I love that. And I hope you get more than 45 minutes. Uh, My hope is for that leather chair by the fireplace. Because otherwise, you're just waiting too long. I mean, summer's not coming in Minnesota until like August. Thank you. Thank you. I feel like you've blessed me. So, Kate, you enjoyed The Collected Stories of Eudora Welty, which incidentally, I'm going to read almost next. I got to get through the books on my nightstand, and then they can queue up Commonwealth by Anne Patchett and Unsheltered by Barbara Kingsolver. All those plays so nicely on the bookshelf together. I mean, even if they didn't, we could work with that. But those books just, I feel like they should be friends. You know what you like to read, what you're naturally drawn towards. So realistic fiction, 
that is about connections. I love the way you put that. I love seeing that in your work. So my personal soft spot when I'm reading books that have that feel of connections is for the found families and the unlikely but completely perfect and wholly necessary relationships that cross cultural gaps and also cross generations. I love the relationship at the center of Beverly right here. It just made me so, it's so satisfying. It just makes me want to like smile and then happy sigh. So I'm not surprised to hear that you enjoy reading about it. And books that have heart and humanity. So I'm going to recommend books that I think you would enjoy reading next, but also any reader who really hears their own taste in your picks that they would enjoy picking up as well. I don't really want to venture into recommending middle grade for you because that is the field in which you are an expert. But any reader who loves your books or loves the books you mentioned here and wants to go the middle grade route, I think they have to read Short by Holly Goldberg Sloan. Oh. Wait, do you know this? No, I've read... um... Counting by sevens by her, but no. Okay. All right. Writing it down. It's all those things. It's about a young girl who is short for her age, as you can probably guess by the title. Kate, that reminds me, when I meet people on book tour, they always tell me like, oh gosh, your voice didn't make it sound like you were so tall. And I hear that you have the opposite (laughs) reaction from readers. Right. No. And it's funny. This is a long time, but well, maybe like three years ago, I was in Walgreens and a lady got in line behind me and she said, I know who you are. (laughs) And then she said, you're so small and your stories are so tall. And I was, how did you feel about that? I felt like it was a huge compliment. It was like, that's, I'm glad I can write tall stories. Yeah, I'm really, I'm very short. You know, my mother always used to say to me, it's great that you're so small. Otherwise people would beat you up for your mouth. So it's, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I feel like it's been a real blessing that I'm, that I'm short. Oh, that's not what I expected you to say. <laughs> this book is about Julia, who is very small for her age. And what happens in the book is not the same as what the book is about. But this poor girl is looking into summer and then nothing before her and is really not excited about it. But the one thing she's going to do is the summer theater performance of The Wizard of Oz, which plops her right in the middle of this motley cast of characters that she didn't know she was missing in her life. What I love about this book is you see a young girl pushing herself in ways she never envisioned, she never thought possible, but she had to. And the way it connects her with herself, which is very important at at any age, but also in her young life, the way it connects her with the former strangers around her who become just as close as family over the course of one summer. And I have to tell you, I understand that you are not a 10-year-old reader. But when my daughter finished reading this, she like burst into tears. And I thought, oh, honey, What's wrong? I mean, I'm all for crying at the end of a book. That's fine. But they didn't seem like happy tears. I thought, what are you? What? What's? Tell, tell me. Tell me how you're feeling. And she said, I'm just so sad. It's over. Oh. It was so good. I'm so sad. It's over. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, it's in my notebook. I'm happy to hear it. I can't wait. Now you love nonfiction, but you also love process. And have you read anything by John McPhee? I'm especially thinking of his book, Draft Number Four. I have not read that, but I read John McPhee all the time, and The New Yorker is what I know him from. I don't know that I've ever read a book entirely by John McPhee. It's collected essays. Uh So that piece that you may have read in The New Yorker is in here, but these are essays on the writing process. And here I'm opening my table of contents. 
the first thing I read by him that made me think I want to read more was his piece that ran, I believe in the New Yorker, called Structure. And he talks about as an author, he had this long form nonfiction piece. I almost told you it was 10,000 words, but you don't care. You don't think in word count. (laughs) That'd be 40 pages in a book approximately. But he has this piece and he knows he wants to talk about all these things and he has large chunks of them written, but he doesn't know how to bring it together. So he talks about how he mentally walked around the piece looking for the thread that was going to make it hang together. And that's just one of the pieces where he, he writes about the process of writing and some of his methods are nothing I would have imagined possible. I have to say, I'm very impressed with you right now. I mean, it's just like, because I thought, well, because I thought (laughs) it's going to be really hard to recommend a book to me that I haven't read. That's what I thought, which is kind of like a grandiose thought, but. Well, no, I feel like everybody feels that way when they're talking to readers who have read a lot of books, but oh, there's so many books. Yeah, no, that's, it's a beautiful recommendation. I'm deeply grateful for it. I hope you enjoy. I hope you get the opportunity to read it on an airplane or hopefully in that leather chair. The leather chair. That's a leather chair one. Some of the things he does are just astounding to me. And the draft number four comes from, he talks about how he writes in four very distinct drafts. And draft number four has become shorthand at my house and in my brain. By the time he gets to draft number four, I feel like my own drafts aren't as distinct. So it would be like more draft number 17.7, like by the time I got to his stage. But that's the one where he's looking for exactly the right word and debating, you know, do do I want a colon or an M dash? Like that's his draft number four. Wow which might be more like draft number seven for you, but just talking about how something goes from idea to finished product is to me, and I think also to you, endlessly fascinating. Oh, I'm excited. All right. I'm going to cut to the chase on the last one. I always want to fish a little bit and be like, well, have you read this? I don't know. William Kent Kruger, This Tenderland. Have you? No, I. It's funny because he's from here too. He is. He's a Minnesota author. Yeah, and also he and I. There's a grant here called uh, the Loft McKnight Grant, uh-huh. and he and I both won the same year as before either one of us had been published. I remember standing. You know, how it's always the cubes of cheese at the reception. You know, <laughs> and um, how lovely he was. And I think his first book was coming out then. And I, I can't. What's the one that came before that? I just read his first mystery in his first novel this summer at the pool. It was a delight. That's called Iron Lake. But he's also very well known for Ordinary Grace, which I'm in the middle of right now. But something that I like about it for you is that he's telling a story about kids and he's telling it as an adult for adults. But it's a story that is important for every age. And it's a story that could easily be retold from a different perspective. And obviously, you don't just like to read middle grade. But I think as someone who writes middle grade, I think it would be interesting to you to see him tell a story about kids for adults. And this book is set up like an epic adventure. It's been compared to the Odyssey. I don't know if that's what he had in his mind or not. I think he must have been channeling Huckleberry Finn. But what happens is these four orphan children who are at a school that is completely heartbreaking. We were just talking about the Nickel Boys. Imagine a home for children, not too far off that setting that Colson Whitehead sets up in the Nickel Boys, but through a series of devastating circumstances, including a tornado, these four children are prodded to escape this dangerous 
but seemingly safe to the adults around it situation they're in. They get a canoe and they hit the river and they have a series of interesting encounters in the villages. They stop in along the banks. And of course, they look suspicious. They're four orphan children. Oh, this is set during the Great Depression. So this all unfolds in 1932. They form unlikely but important friendships. They get in serious, serious trouble. It's so sad. And yet it remains hopeful throughout. And it doesn't end in a place I expected, but found deeply satisfying. Wow. How does that sound? That sounds fantastic. I'm just listening to you with my mouth hanging open. I can't wait. Well, Kate, of all the books we talked about today, Short by Holly Goldberg Sloan, Draft Number 4 by John McPhee, and This Tender Land by William Kent Kruger, which one do you think you might read next? Uh, This Tender Land, because that'll be good to travel with. John McPhee will be good for the leather chair, because I can take it slowly. And then short will go upstairs because it will be good to read before I go to sleep. I've already like made those decisions as you were talking about which would be read where. Yeah. Well, I love your reading plans. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking books with me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Hey, readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Kate, and I'd love to hear what you think she should read next. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 213, and it's where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. You can find Kate on Facebook and on Twitter at Kate DiCamillo. DiCamillo is D-I-C-A-M-I-L-L-O, Kate DiCamillo. If you are on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. Our newsletter subscribers are the first to know all the What Should I Read Next news and happenings, including our 2020 reading challenge. If you're not on the list, sign up now for our free weekly delivery. Go to whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter. If you enjoy this podcast, our love language around here is ratings and reviews. Please share What Should I Read Next with a friend, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, share the show on your favorite social media platform. We would be so grateful. And that love language totally applies to authors as well. If you've read my book, I'd rather be reading or reading people. I'd be most grateful for a review on Goodreads or Amazon. Even a quick one or two sentence review means a lot to an author and helps more readers find I'd rather be reading. Thanks to the people who make the show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone.